Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Um, another interesting point is the role of minimally invasive surgery. As thoracic surgeons, we've moved very much away from uh, open surgery where absolutely possible. Um, however, now there have been lots of discussions, both um, uh, Dr. Mercer probably knows well from the um, colorectal um, group, uh, as well as amongst cardiothoracics on minimizing the use of laparoscopic procedures or um, uh, VAT surgery, um, and then taking that one step further, robotic surgery. Uh, so perhaps, um, uh, Tom, do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing from a minimal access perspective? Yeah. So, um, we're very aware of the guidance and the reason behind the guidance, although I'm not sure whether there's been any evidence or whether it's just an upfront concern about uh, aerosolization. Um, for thoracic surgery, so most minimally invasive surgery and thoracic surgery doesn't involve CO2 insufflation. Um, and so and it, and it, my understanding is it's the high pressure CO2 insufflation that generates the aerosol around the ports. So for that reason, I would think probably a, a, a VAT, a conventional non-CO2 uh, minimally invasive approach in thoracic surgery is probably pretty safe, maybe even safer than an open approach because you have less, you know, less lung flapping around in the air and more of the virus you know, around the lung being kept inside the chest. So I see no reason to be concerned uh, up front about a, a, a VATS non-CO2 insufflating approach to chest surgery. Um, what's clear is that we need to make whatever surgery we're doing extra safe because we don't have the normal safety net of critical care if there's a major interrupted bleed. So our operational plan is that we have no problem with people doing straightforward cases by non-CO2 VATS. Um, but if, if, if we feel we're heading into dangerous vascular injury territory, we should open to keep it safe because you know, a major bleed and blood transfusion and you know, uh, ITU backup just probably isn't available or a good idea. Um, robotic surgery, the way most people carry it out, does involve CO2 insufflation of the thorax. Um, my view is that there's probably no role for robotic surgery at the moment. Um, it's usually for small early stage tumours, and I think those patients would uh, be better off with a deferred approach to surgery in two or three months time. Um, and uh, CO2 aerosolization within the chest cavity has got to be even more dangerous within the abdomen because presumably there's a lot more virus on the visceral pleural surface than there is on the surface of the bowel. Um, so I, I think any operative approach to the chest that involves CO2 insufflation is a bad idea at the moment. Obviously, I, there is no evidence to back any of this up. Thank you. Uh, Alberto, what, what's been going on in Italy at the, from this perspective? The minimally invasive, you mean? Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, we carry out our operations in minimally invasive surgery, but without CO2 in most of the centres, I would say. 
and even um, there are very few centers uh, using robotics with CO2. So um, as Mr. Rakic said, um, there's no um, evidence of what problems can CO2 uh, produce at the level of the plura, uh, but certainly um, not using CO2 doesn't make a difference and still we are doing something safe and good for, for the patient. Uh, of course, given these um, problems, um, shortage of ICU beds, um, actually we don't have ICU beds at all, I would say right now. And um, the fact that it may take a little longer for uh, bigger lesions or N1 slash N2 disease, uh, those cases are carried out in open. We are, we are quick and, uh, and fast in order to, to make sure that the, the procedure is safe and lasts as little as possible, as, yeah, as, as shortly as possible. Thank you. Um, Dr. Mercer, from a, from a collaborative perspective, you've obviously seen what's been going on with other specialties. Is there anything else we can learn from that? I, I lost part of what you said there. I saw your lips moving, but nothing else. From a from a collaborative um, perspective, do you think there are things that we can learn as a specialty from from our, our other colleagues? Well, I think all all of the people doing laparoscopic surgery had slightly different um, parameters. But as you're saying, if you're not using CO2 insufflation, it's not such a major problem. But they've had, you know, the gynaecologists have had explosive uh, detonation of the uterus out of the vagina in some cases. Um, when they haven't uh, deflated the, the, the abdomen properly. So everyone's saying if you do have to do laparoscopy and you do insufflate, then you have to release the pressure very slowly on it. Um, I think more of an issue for you guys is what you do with the, um, uh, with the hoods and the, um, the numbers of air changes that you've got. That's probably more of a risk for thoracic and for, um, and for ENT because of the viral load that comes with having the hoods on and when do you turn the hood off before you open the doors of the theatre. Um, but it sounds if you're not using CO2 then it's, 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 it's not such a major problem as some of the other people are having. But essentially a lot of people have stopped doing laparoscopy at the moment. The, the, certainly the, the Guy's Hospital abdominal surgical view seems to be that to keep the use of CO2 insufflation surgery to, a, to an absolute minimum. So there are some cases where the surgeons feel the benefit to the patient of a laparoscopic approach versus an open approach is so enormous that um, it's worth uh, essentially placing the staff at uh, increased risk in order to do the patient, uh, to provide better treatment for the patient, which is a, you know, always a very difficult trade-off under these circumstances. But if the, if the benefit to the patient is, is more moderate, then, uh, then they are trying to avoid a laparoscopic approach. Mm -hmm. From our point of view specifically, there is uh, this uh, habit of testing uh, the, the stump after the lobectomy is performed or uh, assessing whether the inflation of the, the remaining lobe is uh, good enough. And sometimes with pleural scars or the pleural not being completely, um, you know, uh, I mean, you're being rough sometimes with, with the staplers, uh, you may have some air leak. So that's actually the, the point where the most dangerous um, aspect of the surgery, the thoracic surgery, may happen because that's where the, the viral spread through aerosolization can, can happen. And probably the minimally invasive approach actually contains it inside the chest. 
rather than spreading it around through a thoracotomy. I think that's probably, I think there is something to be said for that being the case. The other thing, uh, although I'm not often a fan of expensive and unproven adjuncts, I think anything that you can use to minimize post-operative air leak, you know, sealants or topical patches that you place on suture lines or raw parenchyma to minimize post-operative air leak, both for the operative team and also for the ward team afterwards. Um, I think, you know, quick surgery is good. Uh, and surgery that absolutely minimizes air leak. You know, yeah. Both of those things are true under normal circumstances, but, but they are particularly true now. And I think money spent on uh, adjuncts and sealants to reduce air leak is probably money well spent at the moment. Absolutely. Another thing, um, when finishing procedures, Tom, have you changed the practice of drain connection and things like this? Because usually we put a drain in, leave it, and then connect it when everyone's got the kit ready. So presumably you want to connect the drain as early as possible for the lungs expanded. Absolutely. We connect the drain as early as possible. We place it uh, on, uh, on suction in the operating room um, if we're using an underwater seal to, so that the, uh, and we do that um, uh, before closing the chest so that as soon as air starts being forced out through the drain, it's going, uh, it's going into the wall suction rather than just into the operating theatre environment. Um, and I think, you know, little things like that can potentially make a big difference to the exposure. The other uh, operative uh, operational thing we've changed is we are uh, being much less uh, excited about lymph node uh, removal. It, there's there's a, a fairly universal view that at, at the moment adjuvant chemotherapy for node positive lung cancer is probably not in anybody's interests. Um, and while the added morbidity of a lymph node harvesting at the end of an operation is not huge, it does take longer and a, a longer operation is more exposure of staff and it does increase the risk of post-operative bleeding and length of stay modestly. Um, and if it's not going to change the patient's uh, treatment at all, um, then I'm not sure that uh, extensive, you know, maybe uh, you know, remove the lymph nodes that are in the way and certainly remove the ones that are clearly involved. But I think the risk benefits for everybody, patient and staff of a radical lymphadenectomy probably don't justify it at the moment. And actually, have, we, have you changed the breakdown of procedures that you're doing? So things like mesothelioma surgery, for example, procedures that would generate huge air leaks by, as a matter of normality, are we doing less of those? So mesothelioma surgery at the moment in London uh, is only really carried out as part of uh, the Mars multimodality study. And our view at the moment is that we have no business doing uh, experimental cancer operations that have a, you know, a large post-operative uh, requirement for ITU, usually for several days, even when things go well, and render patients probably extremely vulnerable to viral pneumonia with no proven benefit. And as you say, a large air leak and therefore considerable staff risk as well. We think for all of those reasons, there is no reason to be carrying out that sort of operation at all at the moment. So we have withdrawn entirely from uh, radical mesothelioma surgery and, uh, you know, until the situation changes considerably. We're really focusing on operating on bulkier tumours um, in fitter patients, the kind of patient who you know will do really badly if you, you, know, if you send them away and say, come back in July probably it'll be too late to help them by then. Um, and the kind of patient that you are reasonably confident you can get out of hospital in three or four days without recourse to ITU. Um, so it's a, a much more restrictive practice than, than we were offering uh, you know, a month ago. Prof. Noel, have you changed your practice in ENT in a similar fashion? Um, I can't think of too many examples uh, in that um, sense because any 
drains and things like that that we do in the neck are not directly connected to the airway. So um, no, I don't think there's any major impacts in, 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 in what you all have just been discussing as far as EMG is concerned, at least not that I can think of immediately. Can I, Alberto, can I ask you, um, are you routinely testing patients uh, for coronavirus in advance of offering them cancer surgery? Or are you offering anybody who's asymptomatic? We, our practice is to try very hard not to operate on somebody who is, you know, developing uh, uh, viral pneumonia. So we're nasal swabbing and currently uh, x-raying everybody a day or two before surgery. Um, and some of my colleagues are thinking about CTing them um, a day or two before surgery to make sure they don't have, you know, classic uh, uh, CT evidence of viral, of, of asymptomatic viral infection. Are you doing the same thing or do you just not have the resources to do that? Well, um, we, we try to do it. Um, we, we don't have the resources for all the patients. So basically, yes, x-rays. Um, we actually admit the patients a few days before the operation itself. Uh, in a sort of isolation so that they would not get interaction with people who may be uh, asymptomatic. Um, we do test them if we suspect they have um, symptoms. Uh, as an example, the other day, um, a patient who actually had uh, atelectasis of the lower lobe due to a bulky lesion, uh, higher the lesion, of the left lung, uh, developed fever, and she was supposed to have surgery the same day. We were not allowed to take her to theater. We had, the, we had her tested, isolated, chest x-ray, re-scanned, and then fortunately the test was negative, and uh, we could carry on the operation the next day. But that's, that's what we're doing as well. Okay, thank you. Another aspect of practice that's changed a lot for us is the consent process. Um, I, I, I can't quote the data, but I, I heard there's some data coming out of Asia that the perioperative mortality for lung resection uh, at the moment is significantly higher, maybe as high as 10% or more. Um, and I think you need to have a very different conversation with patients having elective cancer surgery than you would have had a month ago. Um, even if they're fit and well and you're operating in a clean environment with a clean team, clearly there is a, a risk of them, you know, uh, suffering severe uh, respiratory failure in the not just the inpatient phase, but in the, in the weeks following surgery as well. And we're very clear to be honest about that as well. And, and that's, you know, changes some patients' view on whether they want surgery. Yeah, that's the same for us as well. We have a routine uh, multidisciplinary in, in this uh, contest. So uh, if we understand that we are not able uh, to operate in due time, the patient and the tumor is actually big and the, uh, and the patient can't wait, either we refer the patient to another center um, or uh, we talk uh, very clearly and uh, with the risks and benefits. Of course, our situation is probably a bit uh, different from what you're facing right now because we, we run very few lists uh, a week and um, due to a shortage of equipment, of medical staff, nurses, uh, so it's, it's very, very difficult. We are trying to um, 
operate in other centers as well. We, I mean, our management is trying to figure out whether there's an opportunity to operate in other hospitals which are COVID-free because unfortunately, fortunately, this hospital has become a COVID hospital. So everything is actually rearranged to accommodate all the COVID patients needing ICU and uh, critical uh, care uh, units as well. So um, our situation is probably worse and this actually is reflecting on, on the care we, we give to the patients. So I think, as we said, uh, being very clear on the outcomes, the risks, benefits, and if possible, wait or delay uh, the, uh, the operation that, that's in, in the patient's interest, but uh, in, in, in our interest as well. Well, I, I think you highlight one of the most difficult things for us as surgeons during the current situation is not being able to provide the high level of surgical care that we're used to being able to providing and, and having to settle for offering what we know is less good care for, for a lot yeah. of us, which is a hard thing to have to live with. Yeah, I agree with that, especially for stage 1 1A uh, tumours, for example, very small nodules. Some of these patients have been referred uh, to SBRT, uh, although we know that uh, probably a lobectomy or a segmentectomy would do better for, for the patient. Still, this, uh, this is a crisis period, so we have to deal what, with what we have and in the interest of the patient, after all. Of course, the patient has to be informed and agree on this, and we really talk a lot with them nowadays, even more than what we used to do before. Yes, yeah, I agree, it's, uh, absolutely. Um, can I ask you, so you alluded to the need for hospitals to work together and, you know, one hospital may have capacity to operate, you know, whereas another may not. Do you have good systems in place for uh, allowing uh, that cooperation and that sharing well, of places between different hospitals? Hospitals yeah. are rivals. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Uh, it's a very good question. So, um, for example, I know in Lombardia, that's the area around Milan, uh, that most of the thoracic surgery units have shut down and there are just two big oncological centers performing the surgeries. Um, here in Piemonte, where Torino is, where I work, uh, things uh, are a bit different. Uh, there are major hospitals which can still carry on the operations and they don't uh, need support. Uh, us being COVID center is, uh, are actually uh, different. It's completely different and we need support uh, for operating. And uh, yeah, the management is actually doing good uh, because trying to, to find whether there is an opportunity to, to, to operate in other, in other hospitals but that's a big problem and a big issue because the other hospital is likely to be COVID free. And so they want everybody to be tested. This means increasing the number of tests, which is not easy. Um, all the patients should be tested. And then it's difficult for us to look after the patient after the operation. Um, there is a lot of, uh, as you can understand, uh, cost uh, effectiveness on this as well, because you need to transport the patient back to your ward after the operation, maybe, one or two days later, the, the, the operation takes place. But it, it's a very, very complex thing. And um, we have also private structures which have been transformed uh, into COVID centers for obviously um, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic patients. Um, 
this is helping, but it's it, it's very complex. So um, unfortunately, I believe that if the situation is not going to change in, in in a short period of time, then uh, we will have to refer the patient to other colleagues, which uh, is something which you would never like to do, but you have to in this case. Yes. And can I just ask, um, uh, Dr. Mercer, from a interspecialty kind of collaborative perspective, um, Tom raised the point about um, consent process, shared decision making with the patients, and that seems something that the kind of colleges together should really be coming up with a, a plan, um, a protocol for how we manage these patients preoperatively, what we say to the patients, and also what our protocols are with regards to screening. So if we can't test them, do we sell, make them self-isolate for seven days before they come to hospital? Do we CT them? Um, what was your thought on that? Start with the, the, the um, uh, testing, first of all. I mean, we, we, we have completely inadequate testing in the United Kingdom at the moment for a variety of reasons which remain opaque. Mm -hmm. um, so testing is probably not going to be an option. Um, and we have to bear in mind that within you know, Italy are two weeks ahead of us. And so if you have 80% penetrance of the virus by now, probably in Italy, 70% or so of the population are COVID positive anyway. So I think our advice nationally is now assume every patient is COVID positive. Um, in our Zoom meeting last night, uh, the, the president of the current president of the uh, um, Society of Cardiothoracic Surgeons was saying they had two, he's a cardiac surgeon, he had two patients to operate on the day before yesterday who needed scans for other reasons and were fit and healthy and well, and they had COVID changes in their lungs. And actually they went ahead and explained to the patient that the situation, I presume they both had critical coronary problems, and they went ahead and did the operation because they felt there was no other way they couldn't stent them, and the patient understood the level of additional risk they were taking. So certainly in terms of consent, it, that discussion, we talked about that as well, and that needs to be documented if probably with two consultants there because medical legal this is going to be a, a minefield afterwards um, and so change to current practice normal has been uh, at the forefront of uh, providing me information and in the last two days we've done the prioritization of all procedures both adult and pediatric the adult one has gone to an hsc and is out in draft form already and that would give surgeons a baseline to say, well, I'm sorry, but we can't do this operation within these particular timeframes. And therefore, there will be a sort of a, a blanket, if you like, of, of protection there. But certainly, if you're dealing with cancers and there's another way of, of, of treating them, as, as Tom has said and Dr. Sandry said, then, then some patients will have to be put down an alternative pathway. And we know that that will almost certainly mean they end up with, with less than appropriate care. Um, so that's a, that's a battle for us to have later. In terms of transfer, um, part of the work that I've been doing is looking at the, the routine cancer care that's going to be provided in most hospitals, and all hospitals will be COVID positive by the end of this process. So I don't think, can, think that any will be negative. Um, and there are, there are mutterings about super cancer centres, as you've just as uh, Dr. Sandry's alluded to in, in Lombardy, that will probably happen in the UK. And it looks like the centres will probably be, and this is pure conjecture, this is, please don't put any weight on this, but probably the Marsden, probably the Christie, and probably one in Birmingham, I thought for England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland and Wales, we have to wait and see about. 
and therefore there will have to be criteria by which people are transferred to those centres and that will come down to survivability of the tumour um, as opposed to anything else. And it's going to be brutal, just brutal. Yeah, I, and I think a, a, lot of, a lot of my colleagues are anxious about possible fallout from this decision-making process once the dust settles on all of this. Um, because that, those decision-making processes still have a bit of an edge to, to, of chaos or lack of central coordination to them. And yet we have to, we're having to make these decisions day by day. Um, um, and it'll take some time to get a sort of centralised, uh, fair and transparent process in place for them. Yes, I think it'd be interesting to know from Dr. Sandri, um, have you had a sort of centralised command structure brought in in Italy to deal with this? Because at the moment in the United Kingdom, we have lots of people rushing around in the NHS, in NHS England, the Department of Health and Social Care, waving clipboards and doing ridiculous things. No one's taking control. Well, something like that is happening in, in Italy as well. So we have, uh, of course, the um, uh, Higher Institute of Health, which is giving guidelines on how to deal with what we should do. Um, but then again, our system, our health system is such that uh, every region has a possibility of deciding uh, and making, of course, a decision of which is what is best for the for, for, for the population uh, of that area. Uh, as an example, there, are, there have been a lot of uh, different ways of dealing with the tests in, uh, in Lombardia versus Veneto versus Piemonte or other regions of Italy. And um, although there, there has been an indication from, from the Higher Institute of Health, this is actually uh, decided on regional um, manner and therefore there are different ways of dealing with the same thing and on a lower level this reflects on the hospitals too uh, and uh, referrals for cancer patients or elective patients uh, as an example that's what's happening in Italy so okay. there's, there's some cows as well here. okay very helpful. And just to come back on, on Tom's point about, about the legal repercussions afterwards, certainly within the United Kingdom, the law changed in 1977. Um, so that the, the Secretary of State has to provide, um, promote the, a comprehensive health service, but it has to be done in the context of the state of the nation at the time. So the fact that we can provide less appropriate care, the, we can't provide the care we would have provided a month ago, is covered by case law and by statute and so it's highly unlikely that any patient would be able to come back and say a month ago you'd have given me this but now I've got I've got the following care it would not get to judicial review the courts would I think almost certainly throw it out there probably would be one or two test cases but uh, but please don't uh, don't think that there's going to be lawyers chasing this afterwards there, there is very good case law that backs up the fact we can only provide what we can provide that's, that's very helpful to know. Thank you. I, I, I hoped that was the case, but didn't know the specifics. But I've been surprised by the level of uh, senior organisational paralysis sometimes. And I think it's concerns of that nature that are sometimes driving it. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if that will be the same for our, Amer our American colleagues who'll be watching this as well. So um, <laughs> watch this space. Seeing as we have a centralised healthcare system, we'd be very good and agile at setting up centralised decision-making processes. But 
that's dramatically not the case. Whereas fractionated and r rivalrous as, uh, as anybody else. Well, the, the National Cancer Director, yeah, there's, there's a, a few queries on a, on, a, on, a, on a piece of paper that I've just circulate, circulated to the specialty associations. But the National Cancer Director wants um, the information about the cancer prioritization. He wants it tonight. I've just, been to, I've just received an email um, that he wants that back straight away. So there will be a framework probably within the next 24 hours or so for that. So I'm conscious of time. Um, just a couple of things to, to wrap up, really. First of all, the one thing I wanted to ask was, Alberto, from, a, from being a few weeks ahead of us, if there are a couple of pieces of advice that you could give us or one piece of advice that you could give us to try and improve the situation for us in two weeks' time, what would it be? Well, <laughs> there's a lot to say on this. Um, so basically, um, I think one of the mistakes, if we can call it as a mistake, we did was to chase the virus rather than being ahead of it. And uh, this is actually what probably can happen in other countries around Europe. Um, what we actually uh, are quite concerned right now is uh, how to make sure that uh, we don't get into what is called second wave of pandemic. And so once we overcome this, then we will have to make sure that what we learned and um, will be just put into practice. And probably there might be some uh, new things which can be thought of. And by saying this, I mean uh, testing more patients, more people, make sure that PPEs are available for all the hospitals in, in, a, in I mean, we need PPEs. I mean, here in Italy, the supply has been very short lately and uh, increasing the uh, infection rate amongst doctors. And we counted around 55 deaths uh, of, you know, first line doctors uh, affected by COVID virus. Um, Self-quarantine is actually very, very, very important. And it, it, it's, it's uh, something which according to the uh, Lombardia thought, and I think it's something appreciable, uh, we need technology to support us. Um, we are developing an app right now, which might, uh, I mean, I think it will help us to uh, make sure that we have a control over the infection and the symptoms of the patients who are self-isolated uh, at home, uh, checking on their health status, and probably one thing which one of the regions in Italy is actually doing very well, which is Emilia-Romagna, uh, is increasing um, the resources for community-based care, meaning all those patients who have uh, mild symptoms uh, and don't require hospitalization uh, are followed up physically by somebody who knocks at their door and uh, sees how they are, checks on their health, uh, on regular basis. So these are small things, but actually make a big, big difference. Thank you. Um, so I think uh, have, we've been going on for some time now, so unless anyone else has got any burning comments, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. Uh, any last suggestions from anyone? Well, thank you. It's been very, very useful and I think uh, learning from uh, our counterparts uh, in Italy has been very, very helpful. So thank you. I hope we don't um, follow you completely. We will uh, learn from your uh, experience. I hope so.
Thank you, Richard. That's been very helpful for me as well. Uh, and uh, uh, some very useful points, which I'll be spreading nationally. Thank you very much indeed. Much appreciated. Thank, so you. thank you very much for everyone for, for taking you. part and uh, stay safe. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTS Net by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTS Net Video, by following at CTS Net Org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.